I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On Sunday mornings, we try to bring you interesting discussion. Karen Kepler is joining us on our program. Karen joined Piero, Connor, and Strauss, a law firm, as a partner in the New York City office in January of this year. She has an extensive experience in all aspects of the state, gift, and charitable planning for foreign and domestic individuals, artists, and collectors. That's part of what we're going to talk about in our discussion. And um, she... Uh, has uh, success in the area of business, um, planning. She's represented artists' foundations, both fiduciaries and beneficiaries in the administration of domestic estates and trusts, as well as estates and trusts with contracts to international jurisdictions and in litigation in the surrogates courts. So she knows her stuff. And prior to entering private practice, she was an an attorney with the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, Karen, it's nice to have you join us on our program. It's great to be here, Bob. Now, this specific line of work, this specific area of law, what attracted you to this? Well, you know, I came out of law school um, thinking that I would do the most glamorous thing that could possibly be in store for me, and that was trying to get into criminal law, Um, and I didn't. Um, but I did know I wanted to work with people, and I ended up getting an offer from the IRS, from the Gift and Estate Tax Division, and I found it incredibly um, stimulating to, um, I know it sounds really strange, to, to be auditing estate tax returns. At the time that I got to the IRS, um, they were auditing John Lennon's returns, so it was, there was a lot of stuff going on in the office. Ultimately, um, <laughs> the story is, is that the air conditioning broke down at, uh, at 120 Church Street. And in those days, we were still uh, tied to the office. We didn't have computers. We did all the calculations by hand. And we were required to go into the office. And because we were required to go into the office with the sealed windows, and back in those days, you also had to, like, be very dressed very businesslike. It was incredibly uncomfortable. 
And so I decided to go out into private practice, and I ended up meeting Peter Strauss. Um, I, I, he hired me as a baby associate, and I started working with him and his clients. And, as, you know, you know Peter, and you know Peter is very, very much into elder law. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. So after a period of time, I left. I joined a firm, and I just got immersed in the wonders of estate and tax planning and estate administration. It's so people-oriented. I learned so much about families, about their lives. Sometimes it can be just as nasty as a divorce, um, except sometimes it's even worse because there's blood involved. But you, I spend my time helping people and keeping, trying to keep families together while they are doing good. Um, you know, it's, it's not as if I'm necessarily helping the top 1% stay in the top 1%. Of course, I do do that. But I also work with clients who have um, special needs. I work with clients who are very charitably oriented um, and focused. I work with a lot of artists, and I work with a lot of collectors. And I work with families multi-generational. So I've managed to build a great practice. Um, and the funny thing about all of this is when I graduated high school, I turned around to my parents and told them that I wanted to go to art school, and they turned around to me and they said, oh, there's no way. No way. You'll never make a living as an artist. And the funny thing about it is that I ended up just kind of going in that direction anyway. And I've met a lot of artists in my life um, and in my career, and I've been spending a lot of time planning for them, and it has been incredibly fulfilling. I guess it's kind of a legendary delay that the IRS has been working with over most of the past year as a result of COVID and the shutdown of their facilities and literally people who work in the offices being sent home. I mean, uh, something like that, and for that agency to even continue to function is, I guess, kind of amazing when you stop and think about it. But people at times have shifted their um, thoughts and attention to, uh, obviously, preparation of tax returns. One of the areas that comes up in discussion is this whole idea of um, charitable uh, giving um, Charitable planning is obviously a very key aspect of that. How can you describe for us exactly what that involves? Well, it in, obviously it involves um, benefiting the organizations and the causes that are dear to one's heart. And it, the question is how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Are you going to give a cash request? Are you going to give a painting, or can you give a painting even, um, or, and how are you going to do it? There are, there are tax rules that specify how you, can, how you can create a charitable trust that will benefit both your family and a charity or charities, but you have to follow the rules that are set forth in the Internal Revenue Code. So there, it's not the kind of thing that you, if you're going to be doing that kind of planning, it's not the kind of thing that you should be doing on your own. 
it, you can obviously uh, write a check anytime, but sometimes we want to benefit an organization without without doing harm to what our children might be receiving. And that's where we get involved in special types of trusts and planning that, would, that have both charitable and individual beneficiaries. And like I said, we have to follow some very, very strict rules that are set forth in the Internal Revenue Code about how we do that. This whole idea of estate planning, um, I guess my thought is in this period of time where uh, COVID has so dominated people's lives and the approach that they're taking with just about everything. Uh, one of the things that I've uh, read about and heard, and I want to discuss this a little bit for us now, is that there seems to be an increased interest among millennials in this idea of estate planning. Is that something that, as a development, is surprising? In, in many ways, yes, it is. But I guess COVID has... Um, brought all of us to think a little bit harder about our our mortality. I mean, death is a part of life, and it's kind of hitting a lot of us in the face over the, over the last year or so. Uh, so, yes, we are seeing a lot more younger people coming in. We're also um, – and, and they're coming in to talk about not just um, what to do with their estate. They're very, most of them are very, very charitably minded. Um, want to, want to, uh, they want to benefit the, the organizations that mean things to them or are doing things. We're seeing a lot of money going towards um, organizations that deal with climate change or with civil rights. Um, and we're also seeing, um, <laughs> you know, there's also been evidently a, uh, a surge in pet adoptions. <laughs> During this uh, during this pandemic, and people are worried about what's going to happen to their pets as well. So, in addition to the typical young couple coming in who is going to, is wondering what's going to happen to their children if God forbid they die, um, we're seeing a mix of things: uh, an emphasis on charitable planning, an emphasis on um, on, on dealing with the pets, and, and, and the interest that's always been there of how my kids are going to be taken care of if something happens to me. Mm. And then I guess the natural question based on what you've just mentioned as well is with this increased amount of pet adoptions, I mean, are people doing planning that I guess – leaves money to, oh, I don't want to say to their pets, but I guess in the interest of the care, the maintenance of their pets? Yeah, it, the interesting thing is, yes, um, people are interested in um, leaving money for the benefit of their pets. And in order to do that, you have to create a special kind of trust, which is uh, – allowed in statute in many, by, in many, many states, including New York. And New York provides how that trust is going to be, what the terms of that trust are going to be. So you put a certain amount of money aside for the care of your pet, and you appoint somebody to handle the money, and that person may or may not be the person who also has 
possession of your pet, and the money in the trust can be used only for that pet during that pet's lifetime, and including up to um, disposing of the remains or burial. If there is any money left over, then it is usually going to go to a charity and not necessarily to the person who has, has possession of the pet once the pet dies. There are also time limits on those trusts. I think generally, they can't last more than 21 years, which is a pretty long lifespan for a trust. Mm-hmm. And, it, and in New York, there is the ability to, um, for, for a court to actually go in and decrease the amount of money that might go into funding a pet. A lot of this came about decades ago when Leona Helmsley died, leaving a dog, aptly named Trouble, um, and she left millions of dollars in trust for this dog and cut out a good portion of her family, as well as uh, decreased a lot of charitable gifts that she was planning on making. And the case went to court, and the judge did actually reduce the sum that was going to be held in trust for trouble to something that was more reasonable. Um, there are only so many diamond uh, collars that this poor dog <laughs> could have had, I guess, you know. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, so people are very, very much um, involved in that um, today, especially with young people. And, you know, a lot of the dogs that are being adopted are being are coming from rescue agencies. And to a large extent, some of them are older dogs that have that their owners have died, and so they and they needed place to and that those owners left nothing for their dogs, and so they ended up in a shelter mm-hmm. and are now being adopted, thankfully. Um, people are very concerned about whether or not there's going to be uh, m- money around to to take care of their dog when they're gone. One of the thoughts that I read in preparation for today was this idea of using um, what I guess is referred to as kind of an animal card in one's wallet. What's the significance of that? <laughs> You've done more <laughs> more than I have, I guess. Um, I have no idea. Maybe you can tell me about it. Okay. I thought that the card was supposed to identify the pet, pet and basically uh, be able to provide some way of contacting, I guess, the designated caretaker. Would that be a good uh, idea? Yeah, that probably would be a great idea. I mean, I know that my dogs are all um, chipped, but I suppose mm-hmm. that if something happened to me on the street and my dog was left alone in my apartment, that would be a way of somebody getting noticed that the dog needed attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Mm. You, you, may, you, you may convince me, you've convinced me to do that for my own, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. <laughs> You'll have to send me more information about it. We're talking with Karen Kepler on our program on the fan this Sunday. More with you, Karen, as we continue. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after our look around the sporting world at each this Sunday morning. 
The home of Giants football and Yankees baseball is WFAN, 1019 FM and the Odyssey app. Interesting discussion we're having here on our program. We're talking with Karen Kepler. Karen uh, joined Piero, Connor, and Strauss on the web, by the way, at Piero Law. That's P I E R R O L A W. That's always one word. She's a partner in the New York City office, uh, has extensive experience in all aspects of the state, gift and charitable planning for foreign and domestic individuals, artists, and collectors. Now, um, a lot of people have, you know, significant art pieces yes. in one form or another. Uh, how does that factor into um, this whole area of discussion of estate planning? Well, we could, we could be here all day talking about that. <laughs> um, well, you know, first of all, the art market has become an amazing world of investment. You know, if you think about um, what a Warhol went for years ago, and I, in fact, I have, I have a great story about that. I had, um, I had a colleague who uh, received a Warhol camera plan in the 60s in lieu of a $6,000 legal fee. And when he died, um, or when he died, his wife inherited it, obviously, and um, she decided that it probably was time to get this painting appraised. And we called up some of these, and they sent a, an, a specialist down to this little house in Roslyn, New York, where the painting was hanging up on a wall next to a sliding glass door with absolutely no alarms. And the specialist from Sotheby's kind of his jaw dropped when he saw it. He couldn't believe this, this little, this, this colored camel soup clan hanging in this small little Cape Cod in Roslyn. But we got it appraised, and after um, the wife died several years later, it went to auction at Sotheby's, and it did sell for almost $2 million. And that just goes to show you um, to a large extent what kind of appreciation there was in the art market, really from even the 60s to the early 2000s. And now it's even more substantial. I mean, there there was, I believe that Christie's last week saw the Basquiat for more than $43 million. Um, and so you're finding a lot of people that are investing in the art market. And incidentally, um, the IRS is kind of, has now decided that the art market is going to be their target for uh, finding laundered money. It used to be real, real estate in New York. Well, now it's going to be the art market as well. It's evidently, it's been a, a way to hide Dirty money, I suppose, um, in assets, it's a way to get it out of a bank and on your wall. So, mm. um, you know, art has become a very large part of people's estates. And whether, whether they're an artist or a creator, the artist being a creator, or they are um, a dealer, or they are a collector, and how somebody is actually characterized is going to determine how they are taxed on the sale of a piece. So, for instance, a dealer who buys a painting 
and now has a basis in that painting and then sells the painting, it's still going to be, everything is going to be ordinary income between the, 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 the what he, what, everything that he, that he gets from the sale of that painting is going to be ordinary income, whereas the collector who's now made a, basically made an investment in a capital asset goes to sell that painting, the difference between what he pays for it and what he sells for it is going to be taxed at capital gains rates. So it's been a, an amazing way for people to invest significant sums of money. The problem is, however, that you have to do it properly. And if you don't do it properly and you don't plan for it properly, it can create a real mess when people die. I would imagine it could be a, an absolute nightmare um, trying to resolve all of that, uh, too. Hmm. Well, we have, uh, we have issues with um, ownership and what, what's called provenance, uh, people not necessarily having adequate records or keeping adequate records of where they, with the source of what they picked up. Mm. We have people who think that you can just pull a moving van up to your garage and throw everything in it and the IRS will just, it'll just disappear. Um, those things don't happen. The biggest problem I've actually seen um, with respect to art in the States is one, liquidity, um, and, and as, as well as the ability to figure out who's going to get this painting. I mean, I've seen people who have, you know, they have three, four children, and they have one very expensive painting hanging up on their wall, and it obviously can't be cut in three pieces. Right. So, so um, it, it usually does have to be sold in that event. Uh, mm -hmm. We also find that people don't necessarily insure their artwork properly. So that, you know, there's always that story of uh, the Steve Wynn and the, I think it was a Picasso or that, some, that somebody put a, a fistful, a fist through in his office. Um, I actually had a, I had an estate where there were Rothko's on the wall where one of the kids had thrown a baseball through the canvas. Oh. <laughs> now, uh, these things happen. Uh, and then, of course, it's, it's not just art. It's also collectibles and some kinds of collectibles that are not necessarily legal. Um, you know, you have problems with people who have been collecting antiquities. Um you have problems with people who are, you know, and whether or not they can actually be sold. Are they worth something? There was a case um, several years back about with a Rauschenberg, which had a bald eagle in the middle of it. And it could not be sold because it was then illegal to be selling, to, to be in the market selling anything that had a stuffed bald eagle. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the IRS said it was worth millions of dollars, and the executives of the estate turned around and said, it's not possible, we can't do anything with it. Ultimately, um, the case was settled, and the painting was donated to, um, I believe, to MoMA, and it's, it's hanging on the walls there. Mm. So they got a charitable deduction. The... In the, the pandemic has had an interesting effect on um, 
various aspects of the performance industry and the entertainment industry. Yes. And basically left it reeling. But there's an area that seems to have just skyrocketed. And I want to be able to talk about this a little bit because there's some very famous names that people who are listening to us will recognize that have gotten involved in this idea of um, basically selling their music catalog. And the music publishing field is an area that doesn't get an awful lot of focus normally. But it is absolutely, uh, or has taken off during the pandemic. What has been the effect on, on, on motivating these prominently named um, performers to sell their music catalogs? What exactly are they doing? Well, there's, there's a few reasons behind it. Um, and I think the most basic reason is that there has been little, if no touring over the last 15 months. And that is how most of, most artists actually make their money today. Mm-hmm. This, this is not, this is not a time for, uh, we are no longer in an era when they make, they make some money every time a record is sold. Um, you know, we're, we're now in a streaming industry and the income coming from streaming is significantly less than the income that was coming through record sales. Um, so most of the, um, most of the, the artists who have sold their catalog are, are older. Um, they are facing a time when really their only income was coming through touring. And it, that no longer exists. And some of those, for instance, David Crosby sold his, and I believe the quote that came from him was that he had a, he had a family to feed and a mortgage to pay, and just like all of us, and he needed to get some liquidity in order to do that. So he sold his catalog. That's the basic reason why a, a lot of artists are saving, selling their catalogs. The other reasons are really tax-driven. Um, the, first, the first of which is, um, and which is immediately came to mind with most people, um, is that with the Biden tax proposals out there, the potential tax liability on selling a catalog once, once, if and when those tax proposals are made, are, are made into law, is going to be significantly more, because uh, President Biden has proposed that the capital gains tax rate basically double from 20% to 39.6%. Now, what these catalogs are is intellectual property rights. It's the right to receive. And it receives income every time a song that someone has created and published is played. And that, is, that intellectual property is a capital asset. So by selling the catalogs now, they are not just creating liquidity for their estate, but they're also potentially saving half of the potential income tax that might be, they, they might uh, that might be 
um, assessed against those sales if they did them after the tax proposals went through. But the third thing, and this is the thing that I found a lot of people were not really talking about, was that they've done an incredible job putting their estates in order. Um, if you remember correctly, when Michael Jackson died, um, he was not in the best light um, at, from, from a publicity standpoint. And so his executors, when they filed his estate tax return, reported his music catalog and his image, which is also um, intellectual property, at a very, very low value. Everything that you own at the time of your death is includable in your estate at its fair market value at the time, at, on the date of your death. Now, on the date of his death, it probably wasn't worth all that much, but the, return, the estate tax return doesn't get filed until nine months after death or 15 months with an, with an extension. And in that period of time, after Michael Jackson died, there was suddenly a burst of activity. Um, his image was being used to create concert footage uh, after his death. There was an enormous amount of money coming into his estate. And so the IRS, um, even though they were not supposed to be looking at the post-mortem income coming in, they did. And, and so they, the assessment against the estate was somewhere in the range of a, over $170 million. And in fact, they're still in court today fighting over this, as is Prince's estate, which has, uh, I think, about a $34 million uh, tax deficiency on his, on his intellectual property. So the bottom line is this, and this even goes back to my days in the IRS when Lennon's estate was being audited. What they have done is they've taken a very, very difficult-to-value asset. Um, it's really very, very subjective. It's based upon a stream of income over a period of years, and you'd have to hire an appraiser to get it done, and that alone would cost tens of thousands of dollars to the estate. And you've converted it into something that is really easy to value. Stocks and bonds that are traded on the open market. You know, you can look at the stock market any day and get a price on, it, on, on what a share of Amazon is worth. So they've taken away the potential of having prolonged audits over very difficult to value assets in their estates. We're talking with Karen Kepler on our program on the fan this Sunday. More, more with you, Karen, as we continue. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after our look around the sporting world at each this Sunday morning. Karen Kepler joined Piero, Connor, and Strauss, a law firm, as a partner in the New York City office in January of this year. Now, are other types of intellectual property governed simil similarly when it comes to the tax rules? Absolutely. You know, uh, and that, that interestingly enough goes back to the Beach Boys sale. Because the Beach Boys did not just sell their catalog. The Beach Boys sold almost all of their intellectual property, including the right to use their image. And we don't often think about that, um, but the right to reproduce uh, the band 
via technology is in itself an intellectual property right. So every time, for instance, every time Michael Jackson's image is used, there's money going back into his estate. And it's the same thing now with the Beach Boys catalog, except it's going to go to the, the uh, buyer of that actual intellectual property right. But it also applies to patents and trademarks and anything that is basically of something that you've created and that is going to, and that you own the right to that intellectual property because it's been created by you and that you can receive income off of as when when those products are used i mean i have a i have a longtime client that uh sold his his royalties to one of those plug-in air, air fresheners. He's been getting millions of dollars a year. So, there you go. That's a very interesting uh, scenario there, too. With the pandemic being a year old, basically, there's been a lot of talk about that uh, this month. How has that factored into increasing the importance for basically everybody, as I understand it, to write a will? I don't think it's any more important than it ever was. I think people just are more focused on it. Mm. You know, the problem is that most people don't realize that if they were to die without a will, their property is going to pass in accordance with statute. And it may not be the way they want their property to go. Most most married couples uh, want their spouses to benefit. But if they have children, um, it's likely that their spouse is not going to receive 100% of the property. And the spouse may receive a half, and the children will receive the, the rest. And actually, after 9-11, we saw a lot of that happening. We saw people who, you know, people who died in 9-11 who left young families and suddenly their homes and their brokerage accounts and everything was being owned partly by their spouses and by their minor children. And giving property to a minor child is problematic because they have no real ability to own property until they reach majority, which in most states is the age of 18. So when somebody dies without a will with young children, the court actually... Um, would that you would have to go to court and have not just a guardian if there's no other parent um, around, but also have a have a guardian of their property appointed, and that can be really really um, problematic because it means that you have court supervision over everything that is spent for that minor. Um, in fact, you have to go to court in New York every year and file an accounting. But there are also a lot of other reasons why people need to be focused um, on estate planning and how it's done right now. Um, the, the courts, as I'm sure most of mostly everybody out there knows, have been closed. And so and, and we've had unfortunately a lot of deaths at the same time. So Having, even having a will is not enough anymore. We recommend that most of our clients create a revocable trust plan, which is basically, uh, it, it's 
acts like a will upon your death, but it's, it does, it's not subject to court supervision. And so you put all your wishes in this document that you can change at any time, as long as you're alive and competent to do so. And upon your death, you have a seamless transition. You don't have to wait for the court to look at a probate petition or an administration petition. And for instance, I, I, I recently heard that some of the courts in New York City are just beginning now to look at probate and administration petitions that were filed back in September. And what have you, that has basically left these estates with nobody in charge. That makes life very difficult um, if there are survivors that need to be taken care of and don't have access to the funds. And it makes it even more difficult to, to just deal with anything. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't open an account. You can't file a tax return. There are so many things that are, because estates file their own tax returns. There's so many things that go along with it. Um, so we do, we do that for most of our clients. People also have to realize that a good portion of your property might not even be covered by a will. Very complex situation. Um, interesting discussion. You've shared an awful lot with us. Well, thank you for being so kind with your time uh, and covering so many different areas, too. Uh, Karen Kepler has very interesting background, as I mentioned, in introducing her and starting um, this portion of our program. She uh, joined Piero, Connor, and Strauss, which is on the web at Piero Law, P-I-E-R-R-O-L-A-W, that's all as one word, dot com, as a partner in the city office, New York City office, in January of this year. And she's been kind to share an awful lot of information with us in our discussion. Thank you very much for joining us on our program and uh, also uh, providing us with this information today. Thanks for having me, Bob. In this home stretch of our program on Fan this Sunday morning, and good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Anne Liguori is along with the Talking Golf program at the top of the hour after I look around the sporting world at 7 o'clock. Dr. John Huber, who spoke with us last week on the program, joining us for the final moments here today. He's the CEO of TripSitterClinic, and he's a um, clinical forensic psychologist. He's been a guest a number of times previously on our program. Um, Dr. Heber, it's nice to have you back with us. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you something I didn't get to last week on the program. The 20-year, some people say anniversary, I say commemoration of 9-11 is coming up. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Uh, some people have some anxiety they've developed surrounding um, that, I guess, especially in light of the developments in Afghanistan recently and the bombing uh, past week, warnings about possibility for other terrorist attacks, etc. I'm interested in getting your thoughts um, on that. I've also had an interesting situation somewhat related. In my other profession as a teacher in college classes, I'm having a unique experience teaching people who were not alive September 11th. Well, I think you bring up some important things with with our college students and children in general. You know, trying to explain what was going on with my kids. You know, who are my son's now 19, mm. my daughter daughter's 16, um, and then I too taught until 2017. I did 21 years at university, 
And um, it, you know, I had a lot of students who were so young, they, they don't recall it at all. Um, and and it's, it's pretty amazing to think about how devastating that was to life here in the United States, but also to the rest of the world. So I, I think the first thing we need to remember, those of us who experienced that, is that, you know, we're not alone. We're, we're not the only people that this really uh, shook up and, and devastated. But then we need to sit down with our kids, and a lot of them have these extreme fears when you watch that video of the second plane, you know, going mm-hmm. through. You know, and I, I, I have vivid memories of that, and I also have extremely vivid memories of the first time in the 80s when I was able to go and stand at the base of the World Trade Center, you know, and, and ride the elevator to the top. And then to think what happened to that, you know, uh, and, and when I go to the city now and I see the memorial and I see, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough. I've been able to take one of the helicopter rides over the top. And it's, it's just, it, it's breathtaking to think that that happened. It, I mean, it just mm-hmm. takes my breath away. I think as we tell those stories, I think our kids hear the emotion on it. They hear that in the, in, in the tales. Um, if, if we tell it and we're frank about it, and we just, here's what happened. And these, you know, these five people got on this plane and, you know, we just, we make it very mechanical. They're not going to get that. We have to tell the story, the whole mm-hmm. story, not just what happened. You know, we have to talk about the fear, how it shut down the world, not just right. the U S and at the same time, we have to beat them. And what I mean by that is we they can still, those terrorists 20 years ago could still win. And I mean that in the fact that if we stop living our life, they win. That's why they did it. They wanted us to be paralyzed. We have to move forward. You have to put that foot in front of the other. Don't be stupid. Don't be crazy. You know, but pay attention to your surroundings. Listen when people are talking to you. Make eye contact. You don't have to have a discussion with them. Make eye contact not at people as you walk by. That is the worst thing you can do to criminals and bullies. They hate that. You've recognized them. Now you, they know you know who they are. So they tend to be nice back to you. It, it's not going to stop everything, but it's one of the best things we can do is make those those people aware that we know what's going on in our surroundings. We know what's going on in our world immediately around us. And that's one of the best things we can do to protect ourselves. You know, you don't park your car to go shopping at midnight someplace where there's no light. You know, you want to – I mean, so <laughs> – you know, if, you, if you do, there's a good likelihood you're going to come back and find nothing. Yeah. Well, right. yeah, I mean, right. Ted Bundy hopes you do that. You know, right. thank goodness he's not here anymore. You know? <laughs> But that's what he looked for. He was looking for those people who did that. People who weren't paying attention to their surroundings. And that's what we need to do. Pay attention to your surroundings. Realize that everybody around you, whether you know them or not, is another human being who, who really wants to have a better world. Now, that may be a different thing for you than it is for me. At the same time, you know, you don't know what happened to them this morning. You know, so don't expect everybody happy and cheery. They could have just gotten told, come from a doctor's office and found out they, they have cancer. 
They could have just gotten a promotion. They could, you know, there's a thousand million things that could have happened to those people. So you don't have to start a conversation with them and become their best friend. You have to acknowledge them and say, you know, good to see you and keep going. You, you, because, you know, you're seeing other people. First of all, that means you're not isolating yourself. Okay. Right. Even if you're doing the six foot separation, whatever, you know, you're not isolating yourself. You're getting out in our community. You're being a part of our community. And you should be excited and empowered by that because that we're community people, community animals. You know, we don't do so well on our own. We, you know, the Geneva Convention doesn't like us doing, a, you know, solitary confinement. They think it's cruel and unusual punishment because right. what can happen? Psychosis. You know, you can drive people into insanity through that. Um, we need to be around other people. Don't let the terrorists win. Live your life. Get out there. But pay attention. Do it smart. Don't park where there's no lights. <laughs> you know, get out there and live your life and smile at people when you see them. You know, when I was in, in New York just a few months ago, it was kind of a scary thing. You know, it was still, we, we were still under some lockdowns. We had to do the two-week, you know, quarantine and all that kind of stuff. And then I got out in the streets, and there was probably 10% of the people that I had seen when I was back there when I did your show. Mm -hmm. Walking down through Times Square, it was empty. I mean, Never in my life had I seen that. You know, I go through Bryant Park, and, man, there's a lot of people walking around. But you know what? Every one of them made eye contact and said, I'm glad I saw you today. They said, hello. And I was like, wait, am I back in Texas? This is not right. New York, you know? Right. And it was it was scary because that's not what I, I, I've grown to expect in the city. You know, there's always those people that are friendly everywhere, but a lot of people are so wrapped up in their world and everybody to down to the street, the people picking up trash on the street were smiling and saying hello to everybody. And it was such, it just, it just made sitting in quarantine for two weeks worth it. I mean, it was amazing. And we just got to keep doing that. Tell people you're glad to see them and keep walking, you know. Take control and we win. Go on living. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Brilliant discussion with Dr. John Huber as expected. Dr. Huber is the CEO of Tripsitter.clinic. He's been a mental health professional really for close to 30 years, as he said. He's a clinical forensic psychologist, a practitioner with privileges at two long-term uh, acute care hospitals. He's been our guest on our program. Thank you very much, as always, for a wonderful discussion. Thank you, sir. I, I'm glad to call you my friend. Likewise. Definitely and certainly the best with the uh, efforts with uh, Clinic. We'll certainly be watching. Thank you so much. And stay well. <laughs> Definitely. Well, that's going to do it for our program today. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge after our 8 o'clock look around the sporting world. And Ann Liguori is up following our look around the sporting world here at 7 o'clock this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.